Oh captain, my captain. Oh captain, my captain. Oh captain, my captain. Oh captain, my captain. Of Oh Captain, my captain. Uh, my name is Mark Olver, and I am here uh, with Ricky Masindo. How are you, uh, Rikudzo? I am good, Mark. How are you? Do you know what? I'm all right. Uh, we continue the uh, Oh Captain, my captain on tour. Yeah. Um, I am in a dressing room at the last leg. Mm-hmm. Uh, it is Friday again. Um, did how did how was it last week? Because we recorded on the Friday, put it out on the Saturday. Yeah, I liked the show. I I thought it was a good episode. Was that all right for you? Not too much of a faff. No, it's. I think we're getting more streamlined in our bullshit. In that our conversations just seem to go on tangents, but we are we're aware of the tangents. But at the beginning, it was just nonsense, and I just had okay. a lot of fat to trim. So it's a lot right. easier now to edit. I understand. Um, the other thing that you will be editing today is every now and then. Uh, I, so just before we started recording, I asked Ricky if he was all right. Um, I did a thumbs up for if Ricky is all right. And then on my screen on Zoom, an icon of a thumb came up on my screen. I saw it and you saw it, didn't you, Ricky? I did see it. I did see it. And then it's gone and I keep trying to recreate it to see... It's back! It's back! It's back! (laughs) Did we know that was a thing? I didn't know that was a thing. I had no idea that was a thing. And I've got that footage right there. And that is going on a GIF on our Twitter when this comes That's up. absolutely amazing. Oh, it's gone. It's gone now. Oh, okay. It's gone. Well, <laughs> I mean, if, anyone, if anyone has ever seen this before and wants to message us uh, and say, actually, this is something that everyone knows about anyway, it's just Oliver and Masindo are absolute idiots. There, yeah, you go. there it is. There you go. Well, that's a fun thing. Hold on. I'm going to do... I know this isn't the most riveting. We've just been talking about cutting the fat yeah, out of yeah. the podcast. And now we've got a couple of minutes of Mark Olver attempting to do different... Oh, oh it doesn't like <laughs> thumbs down. This is... It doesn't like... This is, the, uh, this is the most visual audio, audio podcast. Like, uh, no, no, it doesn't. It doesn't. Like you can't do a negative like, thumbs down. Thumbs up. Thumbs up. Thumbs up. <laughs> there you go. Jesus. Well, that is very exciting. How does it know? How do you know? How Zoom? does it know? How does it How know? How do Zoom? you know? Where does it, does it know if I do it in other places? No, <laughs> just on the left for some reason. Anyway, let's do the, let's do the, do the good stuff. I always listen to the po- <laughs> I always listen to the podcast back. I really liked last week's. I don't know if we've had feedback. I don't know what people thought of it. It was very scientific. It was very different. But I do think if I had heard that podcast when I had started doing comedy, I might have gone, "Oh, okay." Like the whole. I know some people listen to this podcast not in sequential order. So basically, last week, uh, Dr. Dean Burnett, uh, neuroscientist, talking about the neuroscience of comedy and laughter. I found it really useful. What did you think? 
Yeah, no, it was it was really useful. It was like it was clearly he thought about this stuff before and he'd read into it, and it was actually really interesting to think that we're not just clowns dancing around hoping for a reaction. There's actual science going on in the background. But also, I think if you are writing a joke, if you are writing some like a base level, you if you're writing something and you think to yourself, I know that I know that idea could be funny eventually, but how could I make it funny? At a base level, if you don't know how to make something funny and then you go, oh, hold on. There was that guy who said that incongruity is funny and juxtaposition is funny and making the audience feel safe is funny. And I think there's something about the theory of that that as someone that is trying to write funny stuff, you can go, oh, actually, I understand how to put that into practice. Yeah, and also, even if you're not a comedian, if you're someone who just enjoys comedy or has watched stand-up or has ever laughed before, it's interesting to know how the tricks are done and like why you find certain people funny because of the things that they do and the things that they use. And, you know, it's like, because a lot of the time you uh, people just think when when comedians just go on stage they're just talking and they're just being funny spontaneously but a lot of them have actually thought about well some of them have thought about the neuroscience of humor but a lot of them have actually thought about the like joke structure and how it actually works yeah absolutely and not every comedian needs to do that it is it's quite nice to be able to kind of to look back at it and go, oh, yeah, I did that. Talking of looking back, you did a gig last night. How mm-hmm. uh, how was it? It was good. It was really good. It was for um, Stuart Goldsmith for uh, at his um, son's school for the PTA. It was lovely. It, um, they were like, they were absolutely ready for anything. Because what I, because what, what Stu was saying was that all of them have essentially been locked up because, you know, they have they have kids during COVID. So if let's say if you have a child who's in year two, COVID might have started when they're in reception or whatever. So you've basically just been doing nothing and being indoors for the last few years. So this is their first like big thing out as a PTA. So he so when we got there, they like Stu was like when he was walking through, he just saw people at the bar like just downing glasses of wine because they thought they couldn't bring them into the main room and he had to tell them like look you can bring the alcohol in you don't have to see it off beforehand so by the time we all got on stage they were just so ready to laugh and they were like the ideal audience i'm um, talking of which i don't think we talked about this last week um but you did the bristol Vic, didn't you with yeah Stuart goldsmith yeah yeah he he emceed it yeah the um longest continually running theatre in the western world um 1766 um a beautiful space uh to do stand-up um and an amazing lineup what was uh what was that like that was absolutely incredible it was literally like the thing that the the thing that i kept thinking about was the thing that uh, nish said where he was like you we do stand up in reverse where it's like we do the hardest rooms first and then the easiest rooms later on and i don't think that's his quote i think he was quoting someone else but that was that's what i was thinking when i got there because a couple of my friends came to watch 
and they were asking me, you know, am I nervous? Do you think it'll go well or whatever? And like, obviously there's always a bit of nerves going in, but I am way more nervous about a room where I'm like, there's some people watching football in the corner and I have to gain the attention of an audience that doesn't want me to be there than I am on a stage that's like built for performing. And it was just, it was just a great night. Like it was literally the, what you hope to do in stand up like a room full of people who were there to have a good time, basically. Um, and you were on with a mixture of Bristol acts. Yeah. Um, I know I spoke to uh, Danny Johns. Danny who Johns. Was on, who was absolutely... I, I think for you, a slightly different experience than for Danny, because I've spoken to Jade Adams when she's done the Bristol Vic before. For Bristolians, the Bristol Vic has an incredibly important part of our childhood because it's basically a lot of the time we would go and see theatre for the first time and mm. we know of it. We've walked past it for for all of our life. So for yeah. Danny, she was incredibly excited about it. Oh, yeah. yeah. Um, and she loved doing it. But there were also, there were some, like, Spencer Jones was on yep. and Catherine Bohart was on. Yeah, Gavin Osborne as well. Um, how did everyone do? Did everyone else seem to have a really, uh, a really great night? Yeah, I think so. Like, I think everyone basically had a, a good set, had a fun time. Um, I'm just trying to think. Yeah, and because they were literally there, it was quite funny because it was a charity. It was a charity thing. They were kind of in this situation <laughs> where they were like, oh, you know, we want to laugh because, you know, we're trying to support this, but you can't laugh too much because it's a charity. So it's like, but they were very much into the night and they were just enjoying it. But yeah, I think everyone basically had a great set because the audience was so receptive. Did you watch Spencer Jones? No, I couldn't because I had to whip on over to Yeovil. Oh, no! I know. I was so sad because I've heard such good things. Oh, he is absolutely amazing. Yeah, oh, you will love him when you get mm. to see him. Yeah, no, I'm excited. I was literally gutted that I couldn't. I suppose this is the thing for you at the moment, that you are you're in the hospital. And so, although we always say, oh, you should try and watch all the other comics on, sometimes <laughs> it's just not possible, is it? No, it's not. It's not possible, like, all the time. I mean, it, the thing is, it can be. It's more that, like, right now I'm waking up at, like, 7 o'clock to go to placement. But once that's over, then I'll be able to stay after gigs, like, a lot later. Good. Um, we have just been joined by our guest. Um, I don't know, uh, because he knows me, he'll be aware that this is the most informal uh podcast he will ever do uh james acaster ricky masindo hello uh, ricky masindo what does it say jasper not, uh, uh ricky explain to james why it says jasper i have a rich friend who can afford zoom premium that's mm, congratulations ricky <laughs> thank you i'm proud <laughs> my parents are proud um jay thank you are you are you in like, are you recording a podcast? Like, have you just recorded one or later? Or are you? No, I'm doing a, uh, I'm editing together a music video, Mark, uh, in, in the oh, other room. Yeah. So uh, me and Al have been doing that all day. Yeah. Is this for your top secret music project? Yeah, it is. So, is there yeah. A, is, and there's a video. Yeah, we, 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 we spent two days doing a video at a theme park with me dressed as an alligator. And we're just uh, editing all that together at the moment. Holy shit, that is exciting stuff. 
Yeah. Um, you, um, I don't think you and Ricky have met uh, yet. Um, so basically, this podcast is I am Ricky's inspirational teacher. <laughs> wow. Um, Ricky, why are you laughing at that? Uh, I just, I just haven't had someone pitch the podcast in a while. <laughs> <laughs> we usually just go straight into it, but I haven't heard that explanation in a while. So, sometimes, well, because we got James on, we might get some new listeners today. So, I am Ricky's inspirational teacher. Mm-hmm. Um, and every time I say something inspirational about stand up, Ricky says, Oh, Captain, my Captain. Wow. Whose idea was that <laughs> for, Matt Point? <laughs> Who do you think? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Oh, it came up again. The thumb, yeah. the little thumb came the up on the Zoom thing again. Yeah, I've never seen that before. No, we did. Yeah, we nah, did. it doesn't work for me <laughs> Only either. For Mark. Only for Mark. We discovered it in the preamble. I didn't even yeah. realise this was a thing. Wow. But on Zoom, you can make a thumb come up. Amazing. And I am the inspirational teacher. <laughs> Great. <laughs> So, Ricky, how long have you been doing stand-up for? So, I've been doing stand-up now. I started properly in the end of 2019. Wow. But then a global pandemic happened. Yeah. So, most of my gigs happened during COVID. Uh Uh, So, I've probably done, like, almost 60 gigs now. Thereabouts. How many of those have been Zoom? Oh, none, none, none. You've done them all live? Yeah, all live. Actually, I've done like one or two Zoom ones, but I didn't yeah. really count those because they were just like, it's a different thing. Okay. Yeah. I think So this is series three of the podcast, episode mm-hmm. 25. Yeah. And when we started, Ricky had probably done, I think about 20 gigs. Yeah, less. Um, and now he's up to about 60. Cool. Um, and so what we do is chart Ricky's development and different things and so last week we talked to uh, dr dean burnett who is a yes. neuroscientist remember i do um, remember dean yeah dean yeah, yeah, yeah from the wealth scene um and then episode series one we did an all questions asked with john richardson uh-huh. last series all questions with russell howard uh-huh. and we send these questions out we get people to ask questions without knowing who the guest is. Because uh-huh. I don't want people to ask you questions specifically about James Acaster. I just uh-huh. want them to ask any questions about stand-up. And uh-huh. today, we got the amazing James Acaster. So we just got a list of questions for you about uh-huh. stand-up. What do you think of that as a plan? Great. I'm on board. Yeah. Um, I've got uh, my, I'm have got. i going to take the first question. This is a question uh, from Mark from Bristol. Um, hi yeah. um, James last week at the last leg Josh Widdicombe said to me he went he went over I don't know what I don't know how to say this to you he said this isn't meant as an insult in any way and I was like oh here we go and he went yeah. I, I don't want you to take this the wrong way at there all exactly and I'm like what is he just about to say and he went you don't have any shame do you mm-hmm. <laughs> So this was this was as I was pretending to be a version of Stavros Flatley meets uh, Boris Johnson singing on the last leg with my belly out. And tonight I'm doing Irish dancing again. Uh-huh. A, do you think 
Josh saying that to me should be a compliment or an insult. And B, how much shame do you think a comedian should have? Because I said to Josh, that's not an insult at all. I'm more than happy to admit that I don't have any shame. I don't yeah. think comedians should have shame. Interesting. What do you think? I think that, uh, is it an insult? I think Josh is asking you that because he genuinely might be watching you that doing that and thinking I couldn't do what Mark's doing. Uh, and I would, it's cause I would feel embarrassed about it because I'd be really self-conscious uh, if I looked silly and I want to know how Mark is doing that because that's not the kind of stuff I do. <laughs> and that's why he's asking you that. And that kind of informs the second part of the question, which is um, I don't think there's any rules about what a comedian should be what kind of a person they should be, what levels of uh, different emotions they should feel, uh, how they should approach comedy. Because really, probably the only rule is that, like, it has to be good comedians. It's just authentic, and it's whoever they are, and it comes from that. And if you're a comedian who has no shame whatsoever, it's a person who has no shame whatsoever, then you put that into your comedy. And whether that's in confessional material and telling people about, you know, all the uh, embarrassing or awful things that you've ever done, or whether it's just like clowning and liking to like, you know, look ridiculous and put yourself out there and not be ashamed about that, that's great. But then if you're a very neurotic person who has loads of shame or uh that's how your brain operates then that's your stand up and those people can relate to it because the audience are gonna all be drawn to people who either they can relate to or they aspire to be a lot of the time and so people who aren't very confident have a lot of shame they might really enjoy watching someone who has none of those things uh you know no shame at all, really confident people. They really love watching those people. But then they also like watching people like Josh, who is there going, the whole world stresses me out and I overthink stuff and it puts me in the state of paralysis. And that's why I'm like this. So I, I don't ever think that there's a way, there's a certain way a comedian should be. And so many of the arguments you see really old comedians get in as well. And they're like, this Hannah Gadsby stuff isn't comedy. That's not what comedy should be. And you're like, you are so painting yourself into a corner here, mate, about what you can do as a comedian now. Um, so I'm glad that both you and Josh exist and both would look at each other and think, what is that guy's deal? Because <laughs> that's, that's, what, that's what comedy should, it should. It should have a lot of different people in, right? Yeah, no, absolutely. I mean, I never... I've never taken that as an insult. Like whenever there's the opportunity to do something a bit stupid, I am more than willing to just do something a bit stupid. Yeah. Um, but I also am aware that, like you said, there's lots of different personalities, lots yeah. of different people. And I think you started that, that answer with your authentic self. And I yeah. am just a yeah. bit loud and a bit of a show off. And I've tapped into that side of myself. Yes. Uh, to get my belly out live on TV. My mum's not happy about it at all. <laughs> my mum's not happy with, I don't know, because you're not really on social media. Have you seen no. that I was in Stephen Merchant's The Outlaws last week? No. Um, I had uh, two lines, uh, my character, seedy looking guy. There you go. There you go. <laughs> yeah. I own a sex shop in the centre of Bristol, Um and my mum's not pleased about that either. So, 
Um, Ricky, have you got any? Uh, have you got shame, Ricky? Have I got shame? Oh, that's yeah. a good question. Oh, nah, nah, I don't, I don't have shame, but I would say my comedic character does. Well, so then, I Ricky, I've got news for you. You do. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's probably true. It's probably true. It's probably true. It's probably, it's probably like, it's just because, um, at school, I was always the one who was trying to make people laugh. So it was like, whenever people would laugh, I wouldn't divert that into embarrassment. It would kind of be like, that's positive because people are laughing. As long as people aren't pointing and laughing, because that's a very different thing. But like, people laughing with you is a very different thing to being made fun of. So I kind of struggled to be like properly, properly embarrassed. Mm hmm. Yeah, I can see that. Um, do you have any questions, Ricky, from our noble listeners? Have you got any at hand? Oh, yes, I have many a question at hand. Um, okay, here's a question from a local Bristol comic. When you're, when you're doing stand-up to your fans, admirers, how does that compare to doing it to a mixed audience? So do you ever have to like think of about that? Is that even a factor or is it just something that you just go and perform the same stuff? I just perform the same stuff regardless because I don't have any backup. So like I don't have uh, many gears. I've never really given myself those options because for a long time, I was just building up to doing the Edinburgh Festival um, each year and I wanted to focus on my show. So I used all of my gigs on the circuit before I had an audience of my own just to work on my new show, which sometimes was really stupid of me. You know, I remember having gigs abroad in Bahrain for the weekend and going on stage and saying I was an undercover cop and all this stuff and just playing to absolute silence. And in retrospect, I would have been a lot better off doing the observational routines from that show on their own uh, mm -hmm. without the undercover cop context and trying to tailor it for that audience a bit more. But at that point during that week, it was the specifically the undercover cop stuff I wanted to work on. So I worked on it. And that means I've just kind of always done the same in front of all audiences, just whatever I kind of feel like doing at the time. I think that I've been very lucky the last few years and mainly playing to my audience most of the time. And that if I went back to doing gigs in front of people who weren't my audience at mixed bill nights, especially in parts of the world where people don't know who I am. Um, actually, I was going to say it would be really difficult, but the last time I did that was in America in 2017 in January, February time. And my specials hadn't come out yet. So no one in America knew who I was. And I was going around jumping on mixed bills. And actually, what I really liked about that was that you could surprise people again. Because you walk on and they're like, who's this guy? No, I, you know, no expectations. Maybe they judge you on how you look and decide mm, he's going to be a bit weird or whatever it is. And then being able to go on and surprise them with the kind of comedy that you do. And I hadn't had that in a while where I was able to walk on and there was no preconceptions, whether it's not the week or um, I don't know what else it would have been around that time. Uh, maybe Josh's XFM podcast or something like that. There would be something following me on stage as I walked on and they would expect, oh, it's going to be this kind of stuff. We've seen him on this, this and this or whatever. And 
you kind of don't get to uh, surprise them as much. I remember seeing a lot of really cool open spots as I was coming up. And there's a point where I was doing a bit more TV and people had preconceptions before I went on. And I got a little bit jealous of the really good open spots who were going on in the middle of the, you know, in between the headliner and the opener. Because especially like, I remember Matt Reese and thinking, I know Matt's brilliant. This audience don't know that. He's walking on stage now and they're about to have their minds blown because they're going from no expectations whatsoever to he's the comic they're going to talk about on the way home. And definitely I didn't have that again until those few months in America. And that was really fun. So that's not saying I don't enjoy playing to my audience. I do if I'm doing it for like, you know, a long period of time, I get to do my show. I get to tell them that story or whatever and and Mm. really stretch things. And that's fun. And they're more patient than an audience who don't know you would be if you're doing an hour, you know, hour long shows are generally speaking easier than they used to be, but short sets um, are harder. I'd say now because uh, you're more likely at those mixed bills to kind of get heckled by people who kind of know you, but not really uh, as opposed to audiences who just completely don't know who you are. Yeah. That short set used to be where you'd really have your best gigs when you were starting out. Yeah. And, uh, the longer ones would be harder. Yeah. So would you be tempted to, um, cause I mean, I was, I was just about to say this is a joke. Would you be tempted to wear a disguise? <laughs> and go, but, Stuart Lee did that, didn't he? With um, he did, was it yeah. bacon face? Yeah, yeah. Um, and I can see why people would want to experiment with that. I think I kind of like when I did my follow-up show to the Netflix ones. You know, I chose a costume. I know it was still me, and my name's on the poster. But I walked on with a completely different image uh, to what I've had in the past and acting differently, just so the audience who are your audience who kind of come up with a certain thing in mind. This is what we're going to see tonight to immediately out the gate, come out swearing and acting bolshy and wearing shades <laughs> and stuff. And then for them to be like, oh, okay, well, I guess we will stop expecting him to do that <laughs> stuff then. Um, so it's quite a nice reset sometimes to, like, like bands do with their albums, some bands to kind of come out and go, this album is going to be completely different from the last one. So don't expect us to do that one again. And I think that's yeah. quite a freeing thing if you're a creative person. Um, I have got a series of questions. So uh, you know that I've been involved in the BBC New Comedy Awards. Yeah. Um, which was a lot of fun. Um, such a fun process. And I have some questions. Basically, there's a little group mm. of all the people that were in the regional finals. And I said to them, exactly this. Got a comedian on today. He's quite famous. Uh, I'm not going to tell you who he is. He's really good as well. Have you got some questions for him? And I thought, this is a really interesting level of person to ask because mm. they are like the regional finalists. They've just done a bit of telly. So I thought I'm going to get some brilliant questions from them. So here we go. Have you ever gone back to an idea which resoundingly failed uh, when you were a new comedian and found a way of making it work when you had evolved as a comedian? Yes. Loads. Loads and loads. Um, the first... Um, gig I ever did, I went on stage and I tried to do a faux improv about uh, not knowing where to put the mic stand um, after taking the mic out of it and saying to the audience, uh, what's good feng shui for the mic and where, where should I be putting this mic stand? And it got a titter, but after that, I, I you know, it kind of worked my first ever gig a little bit. And then I tried to do that as my standard opener and it was just like, it would just kill me and it just never really worked. Mm. And 
2015, it ended up being the whole end of my kind of show was not known. It was like, and I didn't say Feng Shui to the audience. I didn't like spell it out, but it became this thing of not knowing where to put the mic stand. And clearly that that was winding me up. And <laughs> that was how I was manifesting my frustrations with a story that I was telling and kept on moving the stand around the stage until I eventually like took the stand apart completely and had like got frustrated with it. And that was, yeah, the first thing I ever did on stage was walk on and try that bit. And then however many years later, it was like this big end into a, a show that I'd done and kind of the way I'd figured out to do it is don't over explain it to them. Don't actually explain I'm doing, you know, it's a feng shui kind of thing and I'm doing, this is the joke and actually just show that they'll, they'll pick up that it's weird that you're doing it and that you can't, you, you, you keep on moving the mic stand to somewhere else. And yeah, it just took a long time, but it was always a thing in my head of, I did like that bit and I didn't make it work. So one day when I find somewhere that, that it works in a show, put it in there. So yeah, it's that and a load of other stuff, I think. I think there's quite a few things when I was an open spot. I tried. Did those things did those things always stay around? Like were you were they constantly almost like a little wasp in your head going, This is the moment I can try it? Or did you go, you haven't had an idea for this closure and went, Oh shit, I've got a thing that I tried ages ago? A bit, a bit of both, I think. So sometimes it is stuff where, yeah, I am like, um, I really want to make that bit work. So every time I'm writing a new show, I kind of write that in the notes on my way to my first, you know, preview of it, of like, maybe try this bit out again tonight. But other times it is, um, there's a problem in the show that needs fixing and you you go, oh, that could, that could do it actually. So with that one, I was writing a show and I'd realised the show was about faith and losing your faith and doubt and, you know, certainty. And I thought oh, the feng shui stuff fits into that. You know, some people believe in it, some people don't. And I can maybe like incorporate that in the show somehow. Um, and so just wanted to find a home for it within the show. And there's a, a story in the show where I was getting frustrated. And I thought I'll put that in there. And to begin with, I put it in there explaining it again. So kind of like, well, I'm getting frustrated, putting it down and going, sorry, I'm trying to find the right feng shui for this microphone stand. And, and it was like, kind of, you could feel that something was funny. I mean, that's the difference as well. I'd got to a point where even if it wasn't getting laughs from the audience, I was like, no, no, this is right. It should be here, but you're still doing something wrong. So just keep on working at it and mm. figure out, okay, stop explaining it to them. That's the thing. Whereas when I started out, it would have been, this bit's not, I would have done it the same every time almost. <laughs> going come on it gets titters each night i've got to and not really figuring out i wouldn't have had the instinct of it's because you're over explaining it whereas this time it was like oh no it should be in here but it's still not working do it again tonight see what it is what feels but you know what is it that jars when you do it i remember doing it and as soon as i said to them the feng shui thing that night i was like yeah that feels weird that line feels wrong so take that out stop explaining it to them and see what happens. You know, the next night, let's see what happens if you don't explain it at all. And you just move the mic stand around as you're doing the routine as it is. And I'm so much in comedy. It's two birds, one stone. I think when I'm writing something, it's like, okay, this, you know, this routine is good. It's good getting frustrated, but it's not really got the, um, the kind of scale that I want it to I want it to feel like a bigger routine, but it's not really doing that. And this routine, I really want it in the show, but it feels like it doesn't feel very substantial on its own. And I think I'm over explaining it and then going, if I put them together, so they're literally happening at the same time, this routine feels bigger because I'm moving around the stage, doing a whole bunch of physical stuff. 
And this physical joke works better because actually I'm not explaining it, but the routine that I'm already doing about mm-hmm. being frustrated does explain it. And they, they solve, they solve each other. And so many times I find that that's, that's what it is when you're writing a, a show show is those two things kind of solve each other rather than I've got to solve that separately and this separately. And I've got two things to do. I'm not going to make shame a theme of the whole show yeah. uh, or the whole episode today, but I think it's also quite interesting when I mentioned that thing at the beginning about me having no shame. And I always suspect that you are someone with more dignity than me, i.e. James Acaster definitely has more dignity than me. But is there an element of when you're going through those processes and you're going, oh, shit, this didn't work, but, okay, the next time if I do it like that? Like, a lot of people, and I am definitely one of them, although I've got no shame as a clown, (laughs) I've also got this thing that if something doesn't work... I'm like, oh, fuck, right, that's gone, and I'm never going to do that again. Or Mm -hmm. if I'm on stage and it doesn't work, I'm like, oh, shit, all right, I'm going to bail on that, and I'm going to ask the audience what their favourite service station is. Sure. And I think when we talk about this podcast and we talk about trying to get new people, because that's what this podcast is about, new people Mm -hmm. and whether they're black and Asian people or they're working class people, and one of the things we often get is, oh, fuck, maybe they there's not a lot of representation of those people on in comedy maybe they can get a bit nervous and their confidence can be a bit low Mm. so they would do exactly what i would do i remember my edinburgh show in 2011 the serial killer show Mm -hmm. i'm convinced that that show would have been a better show the first time i ever did it it was really good Mm -hmm. but the more i did it the more i lost faith in all my ideas and i thought to myself oh shit if I was one of those supernaturally confident footlights guys, I would have had more confidence to go along with those ideas. And even if something didn't work, I would do it again. Mm. That's a long speech, and I don't know if it's a question. (laughs) I was thinking about the serial... When you started that speech, I started thinking about the serial killer show because it is interesting, actually. Coming back to the... You, you not feeling shame thing. Obviously, that's a load of bollocks and you just don't feel shame about the same things that Josh feels shame about. You'll happily get your tummy out, but you feel ashamed when you're, bit, when you're doing a wordy bit and it's not working and you think, oh, I'm just an idiot. These people know I'm an idiot. I've got, I've got to shut up because actually I'm, just, I'm, I'm not a footlighty guy. I'm just a stupid guy. Why am I trying to do this show that has a whole narrative and it's really clever? And yeah, you're not clever, Oliver. Fucking shut up. Ask that person what, if they like Twix and do that. Which, by the way, there's a lot of skill in, and, and uh, <laughs> I, 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 I wouldn't. Gen, gen, genuinely, is, and I know that you, you know that I respect you when you ask people their favourite chocolate bars. But, uh, but that is the thing, right? So, so there's different types of shame that come from different parts of our lives and different areas of our lives, and how we're brought up and how we feel the world sees us and reacts to us. And that show you did was, you know, let's not downplay it. You won an award for that show at the Leicester Comedy Festival. It was, uh, it was a really exciting moment for you. And by the time you got to Edinburgh, you were like, there was some, something that happened that you, you kind of went, nope, fuck it, can't do it. And, and you stopped doing it. And you started asking people in the audience, just, okay, you know, what, what have you seen at Edinburgh or whatever? And everyone was like, not everyone, but like, you know, some people were like, Oliver's not doing that brilliant show anymore. Why has Oliver stopped doing that brilliant show? And um, I think 
we so we do get in our own heads so uh, but, but this is also the key to like figuring out who we are as stand-up so much of the time is that we've all got insecurities and things that we don't like about ourselves and this is everyone regardless of whether they're a stand-up or not um ways we think people see us ways that people do actually see us things that we think that we're always being judged for when we're on stage especially when you're on stage you're very exposed and you feel that everyone's looking at you everyone's listening to you so everyone's thinking things about you their preconceptions about you we could we sometimes want to get in there first before they can shout it out at us different things that we feel ashamed about and there is the secret to it all is in that if we if we look at that and we look at this is how I feel about myself. This is how I view myself. These are all my insecurities. All the answers are in there. And it doesn't mean that you have to do a show where you go, I'm going to analyze why I feel like this. It could be that clowning a lot of the time is a wordless way of doing that. Getting on stage, getting your belly out and doing that dance uh, is actually a way of being like, this is, I'm saying a lot about myself doing this to the point where Josh Whittaker will turn to me and want to ask me a question about it. It's not, it's not, it's not a silly, it, you know, it is silly, but it is saying just as much about yourself as someone doing a really long wordy monologue or, or doing that. Mm. And uh, I mean, you, you could analyze your serial killer show a lot. You know, you're murdering clowns. You're murdering the kind of, per, the kind of performer that you probably are, you know, like you know, that, that, that you talk about, but your, that whole narrative of that show is you going up and down the country and killing clowns. And then actually you're more comfortable doing clowning a lot of the time on stage. <laughs> um, and maybe you don't like that side of yourself and you wish you were this narrative comic, but then you, you feel <laughs> you know, conscious about that on stage and then you go into talking to the audience. So like- 10 years later, someone finally gets it. Uh, <laughs> 10, but, uh, 10 years and three months later. But yeah, I mean, I, I, I think that, uh, I, I don't really know exactly what the answer is there, what I'm trying to get at, but like, I, I think that, we the more honest we are with, with ourselves about so like when ricky when you said earlier i don't feel shame but on stage i talk about feeling shame a lot and my character is feeling shameful so like that to me is such a it really took me back to being an open spot really quickly mm. of uh what i said to people and this isn't me i, I i've only just met you on this call so <laughs> I, I i don't know this at all but i remember when i was an open spot i would say mm. to people Oh, on stage, I kind of talk about this stuff, but that's not me. I'm this person. Mm. And then the, the more that I went on, the more I'm like, oh, I'm talking about that stuff because that is who I am. Yeah, and I yeah. have got that stuff there. And I'm just naturally gravitating towards talking about it. And I found like starting stand up was such a massive kind of like, I was suddenly waking up to who I was, however people mm. saw me, um, how I felt about myself, how I viewed myself, but how I actually came across to other people, all of that. And that wasn't always a nice thing. I didn't always feel comfortable about that. I didn't always feel good and like, oh, great. Like I, I had to be like, oh, good. Absolutely nobody thinks I'm cool in any way, shape or form. <laughs> and like, you know, whereas before I went on stage, I think I actually thought I'm pretty cool. <laughs> I had to make so quite quickly. And, um, and then you have the decision whether you want to lean into that or not. And I think that's the thing. We, we get confronted with who we are, how we come across, all those things, what we're insecure about. And then you go, do I lean into this in my stand-up, or do I fight against it? And what is going to be the most useful thing for me? Mm. Um, and yeah, then, then that's, that's the decision to make. You go, you go, which 
which version of me am I going to be on stage? How much am I going to explore this stuff? And in what way am I going to explore it? I would say that over you've explored it in a way that is like, yeah, like a, you've had that experience with that show. And now you're like, oh, I'm going to yeah do this dance and look ridiculous. And that is a decision that you've made as a result of that show. And as a result of looking at who you are and how you feel about yourself and different insecurities on the stage, and then just brought you to this place and it's working. In all fairness, I was probably doing that dance and looking ridiculous before that show as well. Like, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but that was... show was like, it was, it was interesting, right? Because, you know, it was this guy who normally does improv, talks to the audience, uh, yeah, might do a few silly dances and, and gone, I've written a fully scripted show with a narrative. It's a really high concept show, start to finish. And I've just won an award for it. Yeah. And, and I bottled I mean, it. And I did bottle it. And I kind of, and I think the other thing about this conversation that we're having, one of the things that I think is super key for a lot of comedians, and I think I've got it, and you've definitely got it, and sometimes we've got it too much, is a level of self-awareness. Mm-hmm. And I think when you know what you're doing and you can play with this and you can have fun with this idea, but you know who James Acaster is. Um, I, I definitely, we all spend a lot of time in our heads. So I definitely know mm. who Mark Olver is. And I wanted the experience of being able to do something a little bit different with that show. Yeah. And I really enjoyed the process of it. And actually, um, don't regret a single thing, but oh, maybe I do. I just, do you know what I always think of when I think of this? And I don't, Ricky, I don't know if you know this name, but I'm good. I always think of Tom Basden. Mm-hmm. I always think, I wish I had the confidence of Tom Basden. He's always the person in my head. He did uh, Footlights, Ricky, and he was in a sketch show with Tim Key. Mm-hmm. And he's a musical comic, and he's great, and he does loads of writing. He wrote and, I'm like, and stuff. He writes a lot of different things. Yeah. And I just, and I, I, I thought at the time, oh, God, I wish, if I had a, if I had a touch of what he had, mm-hmm. then I think I would have gone along and just made this a... Uh, I think that's the killer though is when we think oh if I was more like that person that's when we yeah. start sinking because like yeah. Basden will be sitting there thinking oh I wish I was like this other person or whatever or maybe he's not thinking just say me and, just say me just say yes, me I, yeah. just this other person. <laughs> but like um, that's the killer when we compare ourselves to other people I, I, I think the, the really exciting thing I was thinking about this before doing this call actually and so I was thinking about being a new comedian and it's stuff like this is fun for new acts, I think, to listen to. But at the end of the day, the most that they will learn in stand-up is stuff that they figure out themselves. And hundred percent, yeah. Ricky's got like you've got so many exciting moments ahead of you because like you will literally have loads of moments where you go, "Oh, I'm this guy, and actually I can do this, and this is something that I can do that other people can't do," and it'll all grow and grow, and you'll have all your biggest revelations yourself. And it's 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 fun sometimes to listen to comics go and this is how I did this and this is how I did that bit. And I think it's interesting, mm. but we can't really apply it a lot of the time to our own stuff. I mean, there are some things where you hear about Richard Pryor, you know, doing works works in progress, turn up at the comedy store and just die in for ages in order to work up a show. I think that's important because it gives us the courage to know that when we're doing badly on stage. It's not the end of the world. It's more about what we get out of each set and stuff like that. That stuff's really useful. But I remember like when my friends who started at the same time as me 
comics started realizing one by one who they were on stage mm. and cracking it. And you kind of look back at everything you've done so far, which has worked, but you don't know why it's worked. And then you look back and go, ah, that works because that's who I am. And this works in, the, in my personality this way. And this routine actually means this and that. And all those things, you'd have a moment where you go, that's why I'm talking about shame. It's because of that. And, mm -hmm. and it, it completely fits into this part of me. And that's why this routine works. And that routine should go at the end because that's the climax of all that. And you, yeah, you'll have a moment where you're talking to one of your other friends who's an open micer and you'll just be talking to them about it. And they'll be listening, and you'll both be enjoying that conversation mm -hmm. because you're both discovering who you are as comics at the same time. And they'll be the most valuable moments. So the times where you will just go, ah, oh, I figured out an, another extra part of this. And that for me was the most exciting part of um, coming up as a stand up. And it's, it's still the most exciting part now is any time you unlock the next bit. You know, the next little bit or the next entire mm. level or whatever it is and go i can do this as well and and this is why and this and it works into this part of who i am in real life and this part of my on stage persona and yeah i i think being an open spot when you start to do that it's one of the most exciting parts of your career i think yeah no it's it's interesting because it's like it's kind of like what you said mark where you're like some comedians to some extent are self-aware but i would have said that to be a good comedian you almost have to be self-aware because it's like how do you make fun of things without also knowing what's wrong and inconsistent incongruent with yourself because it's like there's literally like people in glass houses shouldn't throw stones like you can only throw the stones if you know where you're throwing them from mm -hmm. so it's like but it's like i don't i don't know like any massive comedians like well enough to know if they're self-aware and if they've done their they're like checking in their heads but i would always imagine that if you're going to be that successful and that much of a writer and that's someone who's thought about things like that you almost have to know your shit before you start like talking about shit elsewhere like i don't know what do you think yeah i think i think that's fair i, I think also like some people will not put much of their self on stage, but have the persona and they go to just stick to the persona. Some of the biggest mm. comics in the country have like, this is what my persona talks about. This is how they talk about it. And we're sticking to that and everything else can stay out of it. Doesn't matter who I am outside off stage, but my, you know, my character looks at this sort of stuff, um, thinks it's brilliant or thinks it's confusing or whatever it is. And that's, that's the formula. But definitely I think you do have to, in order to have some consistency there, as well with your on stage if you're working who you are in real life you do have to just be a bit honest with yourself because also it gets funnier then if the audience can tell it's coming from some place of uh authentic you know, you're being yeah. authentic like um I, I, on um taskmaster there's a on my series of it there was in episode nine there was a bit where like i just went off on a big rant and had a go at Rod Gilbert and had a go at Greg Davis. And it was because I was feeling, because you do like two records a day for five days and I was very tired and I could feel I wasn't being funny because I was, I was all like irritable. And I, mm -hmm. and I was annoyed at myself because I knew you got no right to be irritable. This is an amazing situation and you love this show and everyone's awesome on it. So stop being irritable. But, I, but also they were stopping me from being funny. And so I was like, look, 
you're irritated. So just lean into how stupid that is and how bad it will make you look mm. and just get it out of your system. And if it's bad, they just won't put it in the edit. Mm. Just have a go at everybody and just let it all out. And hopefully that'll be funnier because it's where you genuinely are at the minute in your head and then you can move on from it. And it worked. And I, I do think, yeah, knowing that in the going like, this is how I'm feeling. So this is how I can interpret it comedically for people uh, on stage. And this is how I'll do it in persona as well and work it in with the, you know, the, the character I have on stage as someone getting really obsessed by little things. I love yeah, that moment. That. Um, I were you there that, that day, Mark? Yes, I was there that yeah, day. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> I, um, it's one of those moments often when I do warm up, especially for shows like, uh, like Taskmaster where you know the gaps between me going on are going to be quite long yeah. so I'll go and sit in the green room and I'll have some biscuits and I'll chat to the other people in there um, and then every now and then something will happen and then you'll just put the biscuits down and go oh here we go oh I want to listen to this bit and that was and that was one of them it, it went brilliant. on for a long time I love that. I love that. It is interesting though, because like, like what you're saying about open spots, realizing stuff about yourself. I've had one of those moments recently. Like, oh yeah, myself, what was it? this is great. Like, so I've realized that I, my whole life, I've gotten away with saying things that other people can't <laughs> because I have chubby cheeks and I smile. <laughs> <laughs> and it's like, I can, and I didn't realize that like yeah. until I was doing stand up, and I was like, some of what I'm saying is outrageous, but <laughs> everyone here is giggling as if this is just okay. But because of this like cuteness, that's like a baby. It's kind of like, ah, oh, he wouldn't hurt a fly. <laughs> and now I've just realized that it's just incredible. Yeah. That stuff like that's great. Cause then you go, yeah, I can now say this stuff. The next comic probably couldn't. You know, mm. uh, the, the the creepy looking comedians on after me probably couldn't get away with this because everyone would be like, ugh. <laughs> but you can say it and like, yes, the adorable guy. This is a cute guy. You can even do a One routine about that. Are... Have you got a routine about how you can get away with it because of your chubby cheeks? No, I haven't, but that's something that I'm working on now. Like I'm yeah. working for new material. That'll be nice. Yeah. One of the things I like about this podcast, because James touched on it, about, you know, you have to learn these things when you're out there. And you have to learn them on stage. And, and you're absolutely right. And the thing about this podcast that I really like is that people acknowledge that with how popular certain episodes are. So if we do an episode with Finn Taylor about finding your comic voice, people quite like that episode. Mm. If we do an episode with my accountant <laughs> where we talk genuinely about the practicalities of having an accountant... Wow. The people go absolutely fucking mental for it. And that's the thing that they find useful. <laughs> because yeah. the ones that people still talk to us are about, episode two with Jenny Collier talking about yeah. good agents Agent. and bad agents mm. and all that sort of stuff. People love that stuff because that is quantifiable. Oh, okay. I know I can find out this about that and do that. But mm. unfortunately, we all know it's one of the reasons why paid stand-up comedy courses get on my nerves a bit because I think all comedians know that the only way to truly be a good comedian, and it's the thing that comes out time and time again on this podcast, is to gig more and to, you know, do more. Going back to the BBC thing, every clip that I looked through that wasn't going to get through or that person wasn't going to get through, 
I just wanted to send that person an email saying, this isn't because you are not a good enough comedian. It's because you have to gig four times a week for the next 18 months, and then you will become mm. a good enough comedian, I think. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Because, I mean, it's like the original inception of this was because, like, trying to get information about stand-up is kind of impossible, and it feels like it's behind a paywall. But -hmm. what's funny is, like, from this podcast, it's actually just like, oh, yeah, you just have to do it, like, to learn how to do (laughs) stand-up. You just have to kind of do it. That's kind of, like, the conclusion to all these podcasts. Just do stand-up. You do just have to do it. And that's an incredibly reliable, like, I promise you it works as mm. well. Like, if you just do it, it works. That When I started out, there were comics who were better than me and better than all my friends who were just naturally good at it and thought they didn't have to work on it. And those people aren't doing it anymore because they didn't work hard. Whereas, um, you know, Josh, uh, Joel Domit, Nish Kumar, myself... Ed Gamble, like uh, Pasco, like a lot of people who we were all starting out together and we weren't necessarily the ones who were smashing every open mic gig, but we just did it all the time and it became our jobs. Um, You know that I I give myself credit for that. All of you people who um, I've taken credit for that. And I'll tell you why I've taken credit for that. Because... Because I know a lot of you people, because I know a lot of you, and the reason I know you all is when you all started doing stand-up, you were the group, you were the cohort who came to Bristol. Mm -hmm. You were the group who wouldn't just settle in the London scene. You would take the train and stay with me, and I know I've got stories of, um, of you sharing a bed or a bedroom with Mm -hmm. Jared (laughs) <laughs> with Jared Hardy in Bristol yeah. uh, when you were new. And I'm not going to take credit personally for it, but I am going to say the fact that you explored outside of London, I think is exactly the reason why you've all become such brilliant comics. Well, it made sense to do that because you kind of like, if I just gig in one place, then I'll learn how to do comedy in that one place. And that's it. I'll, I'll learn how to do comedy for London crowds, but I won't necessarily learn how to be a good comedian across the board. And you just want to do as many gigs as possible to find out the kind of gigs you don't want to do anymore, the kind of gigs you, what you do want to do more of and aim for in future. But I used to love gigs outside of London a lot. I used to find gigs in London really hard when I started and gigs outside of London a lot easier and more fun. And also, I just, you know, spent a lot, you know, growing up in one town and just doing comedy was suddenly this excuse to travel around the country. So it wasn't even that I was going, I'm going to go to Bristol because I'm going to become a better comedian. It was like, I haven't been to Bristol or like, I like, yeah, I've discovered that I like going to Bristol for the day. I like going to Brighton for the day. You know, I like going to do a gig in, in Glasgow and staying in a, in a hotel for the night. Uh, even if the hotel is really bad, like I'm still <laughs> excited to me to stay in like a, a cheap hotel that, you know, I could afford on my open mic wages. And so like, yeah, like I, I think, a lot of it was kind of accidental as well. It wasn't that so much uh, we were the ones who were really, you know, we were really like, we're going to become better comedians. It was just that it seemed like such an adventure 
And we were just wanting to do more of that. And then that evolved into now I want to become a better comic because I'm enjoying the kind of accidental, the byproduct of actually becoming better at comedy. I'm enjoying that and I want to get better. But to begin with, I was just like, I'll probably do this for three years and then I'll stop because I don't think I'm going to be able to make it my job, but I will be able to have an adventure, Mm. travel the country, see more of the country, you know, even just walking around some of the worst town centres in Britain, I was quite excited as an open spot. So I was like, I've never been to this town before, this city, and now I'm walking through and seeing what it's like here and I'll go and browse in HMV for like an hour to kill time before my gig tonight. And I actually enjoyed all of that at the start. There were some low moments where I didn't enjoy it and thought, oh, this is quite bleak. But (laughs) in general, it felt like an adventure and then it turns into this thing of like, oh, I've just realised I've actually learned a lot more than I thought I had, you know. uh, But also, I would say that that adventurous personality is one of the reasons why you and so many other people who I count as friends and also people who I respect as comics, I think they all have that. They all have that, that passion for whether it's food, whether it's football, whether it's sport, whether it's travel, whether it's... Just that excitement of wanting to to Adam Hills and, and it's one of the reasons going back to that doing stupid stuff on the last leg describes my warm up and my part of the show as joyful involvement and actually I think that <laughs> sums up my mindset when I get involved in any of these things as I just want to get involved mm. like you talking about going to those little towns I. I distinctly remember going to Stockton upon Tees for oh, yeah. Peter Vincent. And it's one of the shittest towns you will ever go to, but the gig is one of the best gigs you will ever do. Mm-hmm. And the Ark in Stockton, yeah, what yeah. a gig. Really? Um, Not for oh, me. What? Oh, what? <laughs> oh, really? I'll tell you about the Ark oh, in Stockton. I went there on a tour do. show. I'm doing two halves. During the first half, someone... Uh, two people stood up. They were hammered, absolutely obliterated in the first half. Stood up, walked past me. The stage is on the floor. So they just walked past me, walked up to me, onto the stage as they're walking past drunk, put their hand on me. I went, sorry, mate, we're just going to go to the toilet. We're going to be back in a minute. Then they walk out. Then they got lost on the way back from the toilets, couldn't find their way, rang their friends while they were outside who were still in the auditorium. Their phone is on loud. That goes off. Then... A bit later, they start hammering on the door, which is, right again, right next to the stage, banging the door because they're trying to get back in. Then they stumbled back in, and then we've got to go to the interval. The following year, the following year, I went back to the Ark. The exact same thing, beat for beat, happened again. (laughs) With a bunch of different people, but it was exactly the same thing. And I, I was like, well, oh God, if that's happened twice now, I don't think I fancy coming back here a third time. It's the only place I've ever seen a fight in a Greg's. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> yeah. Um, Ricky, we've got 10 minutes, nine minutes. Have we got any more questions? Have you got questions on your list? Yeah, yeah, I still have I still have many questions. This is what always go, happens. Go, go. Okay, okay, here's a question. And this is the only question that was actually directed specifically for you, and it's from me. Okay, so the question is, how do you write? Like uh, what is that? Because I've mm-hmm. recently just 
I watched um, Cold Lasagna and I was like, what is this? How does this work? And I'm just so fascinated to find out. Well, that was written uh, just on stage, really. So that was like um, uh, the first work in progress I had of it. I didn't know what I was going to do. I didn't know what kind of a show I wanted to do at all. But I knew that I was very scared about, it's so ridiculous, this kind of stuff, but I was scared about following up the shows that I'd put on Netflix as if like to everybody, they were this big deal, but it's just a big deal to me. And so I was like, oh, I've got to follow those up, even though no one's thinking how he's going to follow them up. But you're always in your own head about that. So I'd booked in a work in progress and I was on my way there. So you know, doing the work in progress was the important thing, but I'd, stopped a long time ago writing stuff down um like actually writing routines out because i would always say them on stage like i was reading them off a piece of paper because i just remember how i'd written them down in my laptop and so i'd kind of talk them through and i'd remember turns of phrase which sounded funny in my living room or whatever set them on stage and it's just like it sounds really stale and like i'm just like reciting something so I'd stopped doing that and it would always be if I have a funny idea for something or something, or not even funny, something that I want to talk about on stage, I'd write the keyword in my notes app on my phone. And then when I, before I went on stage, I would look at the notes app and what all the keywords are. And then I would leave that. I wouldn't bring it on stage with me and I'd just go on stage and remember as much of those keywords as I could and talk about, I'd record it, phone at the back and record it. And then just, think, okay, you wanted to talk about this. So just talk about that for as long as you can and then go on to the next thing that you can remember that you're going to talk about. And that was how the whole show was built really. So the first time I did that, I was on my way to doing an hour, didn't have anything planned. And so I thought at the time I was having, I was was not doing well, like just in my personal life. And I thought, well, I don't want to talk about any of that negative stuff. So let's think about a happier time. And I thought about, let's just talk about the happiest moments of your life. And I just wrote down what they were. And as I was writing them down in bullet points, um, I realized that they'd all happened in the same year. Um, I was like, okay, so maybe I'll just do a show tonight. And you know, don't think about this is going to be your final show, but tonight you're going to do a show in front of 50 people about the best year of your life and just go on stage and just do that and see how that goes. So that was like the first thing I did. Was that, um, was that MacFest? No, it was uh, Bill Murray in... Uh, so was that... Because I remember seeing Kazania yeah. in the programme for Mac. So was the Bill Murray before Mac? Yeah, that yeah, yeah. So Bill Murray was the very first one, very early, and just doing a bunch of work in progresses there. And I was, I was... So I kind of thought early on, oh, maybe that's this is the best year of my life show, so I'll do that every time. But then I found that every time... I did like every Thursday at the Bill Murray for a while. Now I'd go there because it was improvising and stuff, I was just kind of like telling them the actual story that happened, but seeing where my mood took me in terms of tangents or, you know, extra lines here and there. And I just always kept on getting negative and talking about how my life is now in comparison to this best year of my life. And that felt more authentic. and felt like it was going better. And the more that I got upstage to do an hour each time, the more I let myself go into the negative stories and the real life stories. And the, and I started making decisions which were like, okay, tonight you're going to try and tell them about being dropped by your agent. And don't worry if it gets no laughs, but just try and do that bit and see how it goes. It's an experiment. And so that's that was kind of like how you start writing. And then the more I did it, 
or the more I do shows, the more I then start thinking about, and this is usually on the train on the way to the gig or on the, you know, in, in the taxi back from the gig or whatever, thinking about linking the bits. And how does that link into that bit? How does this route, how can you go from this routine into this routine? <clears throat> and thinking about that a bit more. And I think like most of my shows have been written. Um, actually, no, no, not most of them have been written differently. I think my, my first show was just everything I'd ever written because it's my debut show. So that's all written in mm. your notebook over long periods of time, probably verbatim, mm. and then honed on stage. Second show was the first show I had to write in a year, and I genuinely did write it all out. So I, 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 I did that one sitting down in my living room with my laptop writing, and I've never had another show that I've written like that ever. I loved writing like that, that, but it was just kind of, for whatever reason, again, probably because I had no expectations. I was like, you've never written a show in a year before. This is your first time you've had to do it. So it doesn't matter if it's shit. The main thing is that you wrote a show in a year. Was, that, just, um, was that Undercover Cop? No, that was, um, uh, it was called Prompt. And it was the one with, the, I had a wooden duck in it that I would like hold to the audience and all that stuff that ended up in the fourth Netflix show. But no theme to it. It was just a bunch of, five to seven minute routines, one after the other, all about one whimsical subject and just rinsing it for all it's worth and then going on to the next whimsical thing and rinsing mm. that. So it's like the Kettering Town FC routine, the bread research routine. Um, you wouldn't bring an apple to an orchard routine. I'm saying these as if everyone knows them. <laughs> well, I'm saying, cause I, I, I know that Mark knows them. So I'm saying it because it's shorthand and then remembering I'm on a podcast. But um, yeah, so... <laughs> That one was written properly. And then the next year I tried to sit down and write another show properly. And I freaked out completely. I wasn't able to write these long routines anymore. And I really ruined it for myself. And so after that, I was like, I'm not writing stuff down. And that was the undercover cop show was the first one where I was like, I'm not writing anything down. I'm just doing what I think is funny and making myself laugh. And then by the time I did cold lasagna, the one that you're talking about, um, it was, it was more, yeah, let's like just figure out, again, it's like a new challenge. I, th I think the way you write really, if I look back at the shows I've enjoyed writing the most, it's taken me a long time to get to this answer because I didn't know what my answer really was. <laughs> and now I know <laughs> the best writing I've done is when you're pushing yourself to do something new and out of your comfort zone. So the second show was let's write a show in a year. Mm. And I wanted it to be, let's take one little thing, talk about it for as long as you can, find a crescendo to that routine and move on to the next. And that's all, that's all I really knew I wanted to do. So I had one routine that was like that in my first show about a cheese grater. And I wanted to do that. I, was, I said, let's do a show that's all cheese grater. Every routine is that cheese grater routine. So that I knew I wanted to do that. Undercover Cop show, I knew I wanted to do a show where I said I was something that I wasn't for the whole thing. I, I just wanted to have fun and not write stuff down. So that was really fun. And then Cold Lasagna was really fun. So I wanted to talk about personal stuff for the first time. So mm. I think that would be, in terms of writing, we get so stuck on how we're going to write things. And really the main thing that will get you through writing is enthusiasm and, uh, and will mean that no matter what your approach to writing is, you will get a show that you're proud of written because you're really enthusiastic about whatever it is. If it's uh, the type of comedy you're going to try in this show, uh, the type of techniques you're going to try in terms of building the show, whatever it is, something different that you haven't done before. I think that's the way to like, really you'll find yourself writing a lot, even if it's not physically writing in your notebook, 
you're actually, you know, you're, you're coming up with a lot and generating a lot of new stuff. And that's, pr that's a pretty constant process that year because you're not trying to replicate what you did last time or replicate what someone else is doing. You're discovering the next thing. Um, yeah. <clears throat> I guess because of what we're saying about being an open spot, it's just this amazing time of discovering who you are, your voice, different things you can do. And I think the most fun parts of my whole career have been rediscovering that again and the next bit. And then suddenly, you know, it does yeah. write itself in a weird way. That's yeah, really I, no, I, I'm, I'm basically going to back up what James says, which is imagine if you said all that brilliant stuff then, <laughs> nope. and then I just went, oh, actually, James, I disagree with that. <laughs> no, because I, no, I, I don't think there, I don't think anyone disagreeing with that can be valid because for me, it's about enthusiasm. It's about love. It's why off menu is so brilliant because it, it's your obvious love for food. The music podcast, it's about your obvious love for music and, and your enthusiasm coming on here and talking about comedy. And for me, the the comedians that I love and the new comedians who I go, oh, but you're going to be all right, are the ones who fucking love it. And they love the bad bits as well as the good bits. And they love the traveling and they love the driving and they love the gigging and the and the hanging out with comedians mm. because they they love the whole thing about everything. And obviously there are comedians that we hate and don't want to hang out with and there are parts <laughs> of the industry that we are not enthusiastic about, but we still have that love for the whole beast of it, I think. You can't have mm -hmm. one without the other, I think. I, 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 yeah. I have such foul moods and, and I'll kick off at gigs and, and throw gigs and tell audiences their shit. And... <laughs> You know, it's stuff that I've got to do less of, but also I know it's because I love it. I, I love setup so much. I, I want it I want it to go so well that when it's not, I'm like, oh, fuck this. Because it's like suddenly the thing I love, I'm not able to do the thing that I love today because that man just heckled me. Uh, so, yeah, it's that. I, it's, if, if, you don't, if you don't love it, then um, I don't know. Maybe it's better for you, actually. <laughs> Maybe in the long run. What a brilliant about turn at the end that about it's about enthusiasm, it's about love, but actually maybe it's probably all right. Probably have an easier time. I saw an interview with Dave Grohl where he was like, you know, he said about how he kind of didn't enjoy so many of the albums he made in his career because it all mattered so much from being perfect, being the best and all this. And he said in the, during the third Foo Fighters album, he just decided, do you know what? I'm just going to have fun. I'm going to stop, you know, having to make everything perfect. I'm just going to focus on just enjoying myself and rocking out. And it, it doesn't all have to matter as much. And that since then, he's just had a brilliant career and he's absolutely loved it. And it's just been a joy. And I think that is great. However, the third Foo Fighters album onwards are where the Foo Fighters album, Foo Fighters have been shit. And, 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 and all those, the Nirvana albums and the first two Foo Fighters albums are amazing. And outside of that, he's done that Queens of the Stone Age album and that's it. And I love Dave Grohl, but that, that speech really worried me. It made me, oh no. That means if I stop, if I start just trying to enjoy myself, I'm going to be the worst comedian ever. I'll play bigger <laughs> venues, to be fair. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Um, I think uh, I think that is a perfect place to end. Ricky, have you got anything else to, to ask, to add? 
to ask to add now. I just, we still have our endless bank of questions, but thank I can stay you so and talk much. to Ricky for a bit if you've got to go. <laughs> yeah, no, yeah. You... <laughs> <laughs> yeah, make this the podcast. I mean, they can wait for me. They can wait. I mean, I, I, I thought of six because okay, let's do another question. Yeah, James. Yeah. James is not rushing off, so let's do another question. Okay, okay. Here's a here's another question. We've kind of touched on this, but just interesting because we talk so much about like comedic voices and all that stuff. How for you did your comedic voice kind of develop over time? Like, was it always you were comfortable being yourself slash the person you are on stage, or was there a point when you were like you just did an about turn and you completely mm. changed? What was what was the development of that like? Yeah, loads of little bit by bit, and then until you eventually discover. I feel I feel more in control now of my comedic voice and that I can dictate it a bit more and decide mm. like with my last show, do you know what? I'm going to do this. I'm going to go mm. on and actually pretend to be a really edgy comic, but I know how to do it within my voice. But like, yeah, again, open mic, you know, starting out as an open micer thinking that I'm the next Russell Howard and going on stage and, and talking like Russell Howard would and discovering that's not me and people mm. don't like that about me. And then accidentally, you know, or, or noticing that, you know, my routines where I focus in on small things and talk about them for a long time or make a big deal out of small things, they're going better than my other routines. And when I wear this geeky jumper on stage, the audience seemed to like me a bit more. And so piecing things like that together as I went along, um, you know, when I realized the thing about wearing the jumpers, I, you know, I went through this thing of going, right, I'm, all I'm buying now is slacks, and jumper and polo shirts and Mark mm. Olver had a massive big problem with that because he would say you should wear normal shirts and not polo shirts you should wear shirt shirts where the collar sits on the jumper more and don't wear these polo shirts and I'd just be like whatever Olver I'm wearing these and eventually when I did switch over to shirt shirts I knew that he was going to really throw it in my face and he did <laughs> but um... <laughs> it was it was a purely practical decision on my part because I noticed that when you're wearing a polo shirt under a jumper, it can get lost under the jumper. But if you're wearing a shirt shirt under yes. the jumper, that shirt will stick out and they can see yes. the colour. And Ricky, mm. let me tell you this. We had that conversation in, I think, Bath Comedia um, in probably, I'm going to say, 2010 it lasted approximately three minutes and he still remembers that conversation <laughs> that's a lie that's time. a lie ricky mark olver used to bring it up every time he saw me <laughs> for about a year so that is why i remember that there were many places i was at the back of the room and also i would have some comics come up to me and say I did a gig with Mark Olver the other week. He says that he thinks you should be wearing normal shirts. So, you know, it was a big deal in Mark's life and he can make out it was a small thing. But he was right, so there you go. Um, yeah. But nice so there was that that kind of stuff. And, yeah, you kind of, you know, doing my debut Edinburgh show and thinking in my head, I know who I am now. And then you do that month and you go, oh, no, I don't, because my favourite routine to do in 20-minute sets is that, five minute bit about a cheese grater and in my show that didn't work that bit never worked because the rest of it isn't like that mm -hmm. so actually i've now got to go away and write a bunch of bits that are like that cheese grater bit because if that's the kind of comic i want to be so that was the first time where i stopped letting what was happening around me dictate what i was doing like i, I was accidentally discovering stuff for a while oh i look you know 
audiences like me more when I dress like this or when I do this kind of material. And that was the first time where I was like, no, I want to be this. You know, I've got a few things that I can do on stage now. And that cheese grater bit is the bit I enjoy doing the most. And that's the kind of comic I want to do. Uh, I want to be. So my next show is I'm doing that stuff because I want to mm. be that, that comedian. And I want to be that version of myself. But then, you know, following Edinburgh show, that wasn't who I wanted to be anymore. I didn't know who I wanted to be again. It was third, you know, third Edinburgh show, completely lost and thinking, ah, like, I don't know what I'm doing. And then that informs you when you go, right, I hate this. So if I hate this, what do I just, just think about what you want to do that you would find fun on stage. Mm. And without knowing if that's going to work and being able to explore and discover that and discover more who you are. So it's such a, there's loads of different phases of it, loads of different moments that you can point to and go, that was when I discovered that. But so mm. much of it, again, it all starts with just jumping out of a plane and not knowing if the parachute's going to open or not, but just going, let's just, you know, again, just goes right back to being an open spot. No, definitely. I'm, I'm, I don't know what I'm doing. I'm going to start going on stage and trying to make people laugh. And then you just discover that thing. And then there's going to be loads of points like that during your career. Yeah. And if you enjoy those bits, then that is the, I mean, that those are the bits I enjoy. So <laughs> yeah. it, it, it at least makes the career more fun when you go, because like, like, like right now, I have no idea what to do with stand-up. Like mm. I know that I don't want to do another show about my mental health that's confessional, but I have no other ideas. It's so I'm just not doing it at the minute because I've got nothing. And I, yeah. I need to have something that I'm excited about. And then I could do that. And that might never happen. It might happen next week. But like, you know, yeah. it's, it's, it's knowing a bit more now uh, how to, I got more instincts for if it's worth exploring something or not now. Whereas for ages, it was like, I have to do a show every single year or this will stop being my job. Yeah. And definitely when I think about that third Edinburgh show, uh, I, I should have taken a year off, but I was like, you got to keep in people's heads, man. And then being on stage, being like, I don't know who I am. I don't know what this show is. <laughs> and hmm. everything about this is confusing to me. That's so interesting. Um, it's, it's I next... am, I'm going to say something before Ricky says something. Oh, go for it. I think, I think I'm going to go. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I think I'm, I'm going to go and do the rehearsal. Um, James, if you want to stay in chat to Ricky for five, ten more minutes, then if you're com- if you're if you've got it till, until half that, past, yeah, I, I can do it. Well, I'm going to go and do the rehearsal. We we're talking about jumping out of aeroplanes, Ricky. Let's do we've this. We've never finished the show like this before when I've literally left you. So, <laughs> James, thank you so much for this. Um, I'm going to go and uh, be silly, um, and we will talk very very soon. Cool, man. See you later. Bye, man. Um, enjoy you. the rest. Oh, God, I feel leaving. Right. No, I love this. I love this. I love this so much. Yeah, so no, that's what I find interesting, like, from stand-up, because a lot of it is those moments where you're like, oh, shit, what am I doing? Am I doing the right thing? Because, like, the like kind of backstory from this podcast was the first time I met Mark. So he got, he got in touch with me cause he was, he wanted to find out like, are there any um, people in the Southwest who are black doing stand up? He messaged me. We didn't speak for months. 
then he told me he like he was um, lockdown happened and then Russell Howard was at Lakota and uh, Mark was going to MC for him. And then he MC, then he MC'd for him. Everything was fine. And then I went to meet Russell and then Russell asked me to do five minutes, not expecting at all, having not done stand up in ages because of lockdown. So then I had this decision where I was like, do I go up on stage <laughs> and do five minutes in front of 300 people where my last gig was like at a pub? And that moment has basically essentially changed my entire trajectory in standup. And now because of that, now I'm a lot more confident than I used to be just because of that. And I've done like a lot bigger gigs now because of that. Yeah. Yeah. It was just kind of like, now there's very few things that scare me at the level that I'm at because it's like I've had to do so many I've had that just that moment where I'm like oh my god I'm at a nightclub that me and my friends used to come to and there's a guy I've just met who I used to watch when I was like 10 I've just met him and now I'm about to do stand-up and it was the anxiety of the whole thing and overcoming that now doing other gigs, I just find a lot easier. That's great. And I think you're, you're saying about self-awareness earlier. I think like that's something, everything you just said then, I don't think I had that when I started at all. I mm. definitely was not acknowledging any anxiety in myself. I was, uh, you know, trying to convince myself that I was excited to go on stage and these weren't <laughs> nerves and that was it. And really in denial about stuff. And, um, I think if I had had that at the beginning and been a bit more like, oh, I'm feeling anxious and I'm feeling really nervous about doing this and these are the things that are making me nervous and then going on stage and being in and then come off and go, hey, you were really anxious about that, but you actually were able to do it. So that's good. Uh, yeah. That would have been healthier and, uh, <laughs> rather than for ages just being like, I'm not feeling anything. I'm just I'm just going on stage and uh, other people can't do it, but I can do it. Yeah. And then like getting to, you know, having done stand up for 10, you know, over 10 years uh, and then realizing to myself, oh, this really makes you anxious actually. <laughs> yeah. Do you still, do you still get anxious? Yeah, yeah. Uh, I, I, I cut, it's, it's kind of, it makes me anxious kind of just thinking about doing a gig at the minute. Like it, it was, uh, I had a lot of, um, yeah, I had a, a lot of, on my last tour, a lot of moments of just feeling completely um, scared and anxious and stuff on stage and just being like, yeah, you, you need a break after this because uh, it's not even leaving you when you... I read an interview with Billy Connolly saying he used to be absolutely just terrified. And then yeah. as soon as he walked on stage, it would leave him and he'd feel fine. And I was yeah. like, I'm not having that. I, <laughs> I, 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 I'm walking on and I'm still feeling anxious. So That's incredible. Yeah, you know, it, it, it's... Uh, it's something that I'm now trying to figure out how to combat. Whereas, yeah, when I hear new acts like you saying that stuff about that gig, you're like, okay, cool. Yeah, that's, that's a, you're, you're ahead of where I was at least with that stuff. <laughs> you know I mean? But the thing is, is like, it's, I think it's because it's interesting because uh, from what I've been told, it's like the hardest gigs are the ones, you know, where it's not really meant to be a place for stand-up. It's a room in a pub at the back somewhere. Um, and, you know, the easier ones are where you're in a room that's kind of constructed for stand-up, mm -hmm. which Lakota kind of was. Mm -hmm. But I think the hardest things about that 
kind of gig is that it is higher pressure. There are more people watching. There's probably more stakes and all that stuff. So for me, I still remember, <clears throat> I still remember being terrified in that moment. Mm. And like, when I tell people the story, I think it sounds more impressive than it was because the whole narrative is I was shitting myself in the corner thinking, fuck, fuck, fuck. I'm going to go up there and talk for five minutes. I haven't done this in ages. But now whenever I'm nervous for a gig or the anxiety comes on, I kind of just go back to there and be like, it's not going to be like that. It'll mm. be easier than that. And I think it's good having that as a measuring stick as a comparison. Yeah, to ha have that kind of, first but I, I still sometimes look back to my first ever gig and just you know remember that like before I went on this guy who had kind of been I, I'd done a kind of local workshop of sorts it wasn't really a workshop it was like a mess but like I've spoke about it on a lot of different podcasts but this is this guy who essentially didn't really teach us anything but he used to be an open spot and wanted to do a comedy course in order to get some money off the local volunteer bureau and yeah. uh and i did this nine week thing with with three three of us and uh i remember before we were about to go on stage he said to us remember that what you're about to do 99.9 percent .9 of the world's population wouldn't have the guts to do it mm. and i don't know if those stats are true but, um, <laughs> but it definitely is something I try and t I still try and tell myself now if I'm feeling nervous is most people wouldn't even get up there. So walking out there is an achievement today. And it's just as much of an achievement today as it was when you did it for the first time. Mm. And, uh, and that can like, yeah, I, th I think a lot of comics probably had that those gigs or those moments that when you're feeling nervous, you can go back to that, remind yourself of that. And that mm. puts the night, this situation in context. Yeah. Do you, do you think you have shame when you're on stage? Yeah, like, you... I feel I feel ashamed that it's going badly. If I'm not getting mm. many laughs, I just feel like embarrassed, ashamed of myself, and everyone in the room thinks I'm shit. Um, Interesting. Like, yeah. And, and then I can either like ditch the material or I can lash out at the audience or I can uh, start speaking about how bad I'm being on stage, you know, that I'm rubbish tonight or whatever it is uh start delivering all the material really monotone so that i've got nothing to lose because i'm doing it shit anyway so if it goes yeah. shit it's because i'm doing it shit and like all kinds of awful things because i'm just feeling ashamed and feeling like yeah this is embarrassing humiliating whatever yeah and i think i i mean somehow the like the title of this episode has become shame i don't know i yeah. don't know how i don't know how, but i think uh, like a lot of stand-ups have that like having the shame of thinking is this going to go badly and and that kind of thing for me it's it's almost like it's almost like i can't i can't feel shame if they're laughing mm -hmm. because if i acknowledge embarrassing or funny things about myself then it's not shameful because everyone's laughing that's mm -hmm. how i kind of internalize and it comes probably comes from being a class clown as a child mm -hmm. but maybe those you know as you say, if they're laughing, you're not ashamed, but then it means if they're not laughing, are you ashamed? Are you ashamed of those things? <laughs> yeah. Do those things make you feel ashamed? Are you ashamed of them in your life? And, uh, you know, because, you know, there's a, a bunch of reasons why we might, someone might seek approval 
from an audience. And, uh, yeah. you know, I've had to like look at reasons why in my life and kind of look back and be like, oh, you have always been seeking out this reaction from people. And yeah. it makes you feel safe, approved of, liked, whatever yeah. it is. And, uh, and maybe there were other areas in your life uh, before you were a comic or off stage where you didn't feel safe, approved of, or liked. And so mm. therefore being on stage gets you that. But then when you don't get that from the audience, you're back to feeling uh, you're disapproved of. Uh, they don't like you. You don't feel safe. And there's all those things in there. So these things don't, uh, it, it is that thing where it makes you then examine uh, what, you know, is that a healthy thing? Yeah. <laughs> but um, that I, I kind of, I need that from them. Um, and I, I don't, I, I don't like kind of like saying that in order to, cause I don't, I don't want to like take any of the brilliant stuff about stand up away from it. Cause it's not, I, I used to, there's a lot of comics who would go on stage, such as open spots actually, and be like, Oh, it's pathetic that I need your approval up here. And kind of make jokes yeah. about that very self deprecating stuff about how unhealthy comics were mentally and all this. And I don't think comics are different in that regard from everybody else. I think everybody no. is like that. And we've just got the thing that we do for a job is just, uh, you can just draw parallels quite easy to our own, you know, mental yeah. health or where we are, but that there are plenty of people who feel the same way, who want to disappear into the background to get rid of it. And so therefore they do other jobs or whatever their career paths might be. And we've all got the same problems and we're dealing with them in different ways. Uh, so I, I never like kind of making out like doing comedy says a bunch of bad things about you or a bunch of unhealthy mm. things about you and that you need to do this in order to solve this, that, and the other. I think these things are quite common and universal and different people deal with them in different ways. And I definitely don't like trying to kind of belittle what a comedian's doing or reduce it just to, oh, you're just doing it because of these issues, blah, blah, blah. Yeah, yeah. But I definitely think that me not being aware of any of those issues when I was coming up um, resulted in a lot of acting out on stage mm. and stuff that maybe I could have nipped in the bud sooner if I'd been a bit more aware, I think, coming up. No, I mean, it's interesting because, I mean, there's loads of different reasons why people become comics. Like, I think the trope of the mentally ill comedian is kind of like taken over in like a weird way. Yeah. For you, For you, is it like, do you feel... Which part of the gig do you enjoy? Do you enjoy pre, during, post, neither? Like where for you is the, yeah, this is stand-up. This is what I love. Doing new material and mm -hmm. working up a new show is the most excited I, I, I think I feel about stand-up. And like, well, yeah, working up a new show, discovering a new show, improving it and honing it. Playing to an audience who are excited to see you. I mean, there's like, you know... We were saying earlier, but I do experience very different audiences depending on where I go. And mm. um, the ones who maybe watch a lot of comedy or are excited that you've come to their country, maybe if you're not from there, uh, they those audiences, who, basically the audiences who are genu genuinely stoked to see you. Yeah, yeah, those are the best uh, It feels great. And it's really lovely to then... Because then again, it, even if you know the show inside out, you find yourself rediscovering the show all over again because you're performing it in a different way. 
you discover new lines because you're excited and you're, you're enjoying the relationship you have with the crowd that night. Yeah. So definitely I'd say if I was like going pre, during or post, um, the bit that I enjoy the most and the bit that I enjoy the least is on stage. So but you know, it's like, because I don't think you can really have one without the other, really. I think, uh, you know, pre-gig, I'm always quite nervous. Uh, mm. Post-gig, I'm always powering down and a bit. It depends on how the gig went. Sometimes I'm very depressed because it went badly or yeah. whatever. And sometimes I can be uh, really, you know, really up and excited about how it went. Um, but my favorite moments in stand-up are being on stage and in front of an audience who, you know, get it, who like you and you're doing, um, and you're feeling loose and you feel like you're discovering the show again. I mean, those are the best gigs. Like all the work in progress gigs are really funny, even if they go badly because Mm -hmm. it's useful. So Mm -hmm. I'm less likely to have a go at an audience and be really down on stage when it's a new material gig because hmm. their silence is helping me. Yeah. <laughs> so I'm like, okay, cool. That, that bit doesn't work. Great. I'll go away and work on that. But the best I will ever feel uh, on stage uh, is when the show is done, it's honed, I've got it really tight and that coincides with the right audience. That's this kind of, yeah, I haven't really found that anywhere else. That kind of, well, in terms of professionally, you know. Yeah. Yeah, I'm in no. love with my girlfriend. That makes me feel better. But, like, you know, <laughs> on, on stages. <laughs> I love that. Just putting that caveat. And so am I. Yeah, she listens to the podcast. Um, but yeah, no, it's, it's honestly, it's so useful, like, for someone who's at my stage to, like, to kind of peer further down the line. Because, like I was saying before, the stand-up is such a strange thing in that I think people understand kind of intuitively more how someone becomes a musician or like Coldplay or something than they do how someone becomes a stand-up comedian because it's such a like a weird thing that's kind of almost no one really understands what kind of level of reality it exists on where, mm-hmm. where like who is this person in front of me is if I was to speak to this person like even like when I was when Mark was asking me oh, am I ready you know five o'clock and all that stuff I was literally like yeah the thing that I'm so excited to find out is what level of reality is James A. Caster's comedic performance like where <laughs> where does he exist like on the spectrum of reality because I was like is he an exaggeration is it a character because i think because i think if you didn't do stand-up you might just think oh yeah this is james acas if i went to the pub with him this is exactly what he would be but being a comedian and meeting you i kind of get like oh yeah that's definitely you but that's not you Mm. all the time like it's 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 you on stage and i think it's it's honestly so helpful because there's nowhere where anyone would do uh, an internet article about something that esoteric and that doesn't make that much sense. So yeah, yeah. basically, thank you very much for doing right. this. James. Thank you, Ricky. Yeah, it's been really nice talking to you as well. I've really enjoyed it. Yeah, no, it's, it's been a lot of fun. It's been a lot of fun. 
This is uh, my first time ending one of these podcasts because this is where yeah. Mark usually goes, thank you very much for listening. <laughs> and then he goes on some tangent. Yeah. <laughs> well, this is probably going to be a lot more polished then. This is like... Yeah. 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 This is the polished version of the ending of this podcast. Uh, do you have anything you'd like to say to all the budding open spots who listen yeah, to this just, podcast? Just- don't listen to a word I've said this whole thing. <laughs> basically like you know I'm still figuring it out as I'm saying it I don't really know um that you're you're at the start of an amazing and exciting adventure whether it whether you end up the biggest comic in the world or you end up you know doing a completely different job and uh not even in the industry at all you're gonna have these years as an open spot and I can't tell you how long that will stick with you for. Regardless, <laughs> if you become a professional comedian, you'll still look back at everyone you were on the open mic circuit with and they'll be like your comrades forever. And that sounds so over the top, but <laughs> I still speak to people and bump into people that I was on the open mic circuit with. And some of them might be comedians. Some of them might be working in an office now, but I just feel so close to them because it was such an amazing time, even though it was a difficult time uh, and a scary time. It was this amazing, you know, just journey of discovery. And uh, I, I, I really hope that, um, you know, that anything I say, you should just ignore and, <laughs> and really just enjoy discovering all this for yourself. Because yeah. it's going to be, you're not going to regret it. Like, yeah. whether it goes well or badly, any of that, I promise in 10 years time, you won't go, I really wish I'd never done the open mic circuit. Like <laughs> you will be like, that was a good experience. That's good. That's good to hear. I've literally never listened to a podcast that's so self undermines <laughs> so easily. Don't listen to us. But yeah, thank you. Thanks again, James. And thanks everyone for listening. I'll see you guys next week. Have a good one. Thank you, Ricky. Thank you. Captain, my captain.